This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to Lost and Found. I'm Jonathan Green. Today, a journey of the mind to the Portuguese capital, Lisbon. To some, it's a Wes Anderson-like dreamscape, candy-coloured row houses, pastel-coloured palaces, sitting atop rolling hills, linked in part by quaint lemon-yellow trams. But Lisbon has also been described as a place which has a feeling of palpable longing, one that brandishes its own forgottenness like a flag, drifting forever at the far end of the European continent. Those words belong to the American writer Casey Walker, who spent considerable time in the Portuguese capital. You can read his essay, Lisbon, Beyond What the Tourist Should See, in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It's a really indescribable quality, really, this longing and haunting. I mean, I think they certainly, it's a place that more than almost any other city I've been in, I think kind of valorizes its its poets and its writers. And it has this, there's a very kind of like sad and haunting national music, the fado um, that you often hear kind of wafting out of these cafes. And at the time I visited, you know, I arrived and there had just been like a fantastic rainstorm the night before and everything was kind of wet and flooded and, and glistening. But... I, I was struck at once by the um, the sort of haunting beauty of the place, and these. I think one of the things that stands out to you upon first arriving is there's so many of the buildings are decorated in these what they call them azulejo tiles. That this very intricate patterning that comes down from the sort of Muslim history and the dynasties that had been on the Iberian Peninsula centuries ago. Um, but so many of the buildings are now still adorned and decorated in these fantastically patterned tiles. And what I noticed the first day I arrived after this rainstorm was how all those tiles uh, and these patterns just sort of glistened and it made all these buildings, many of which at the time were kind of quite old and, and crumbling and moribund, also seem just kind of fantastically vivid and alive. It was a very quiet city that seemed to have a sense of the bygone about it and that really had a, a seemed like a place where a, a lot had happened and yet people were still sort of processing almost an aftermath of it. And, you know, I think maybe in a way it's very striking as an American to go visit a place like that because there's something just in the American psyche uh, and, and American kind of hyper-capitalism that I think is so busy looking toward the future. And this was really a place that I think in, in Lisbon expressed this very palpable longing for the past. Election fever in Portugal. Scenes like these are rare in Lisbon, and the excitement's understandable. It's nearly 50 years since the Portuguese were allowed to express their political opinions in free elections. The Portuguese revolution began just one year ago. On April 25, 1974, a bloodless military coup swept away the authoritarian regime, which had ruled Portugal for 48 years. First, under Dr. Salazar, and then under his successor, Dr. Caetano. 
there's little doubt the move was welcomed by most Portuguese. The figurehead of the coup was General Antonio de Spinola, former second-in-command of the Portuguese army. Although basically conservative, he championed independence for Portugal's overseas empire, and he seemed just the man to ensure change without upheaval. The Portuguese think strategically. On the line from his desk in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, Professor Thomas Bruno. In the sense that if you look at a map, you see that they are just on the periphery of Europe, far from you know the, the main action of Germany and France. But once you project out and emphasize NATO, including North America, the United States and Canada, then Portugal is right in the middle of the action. And by doing this, and they do it very, very well, it, it makes them uh, strategically more important. So uh, what it is, they, they, they basically, uh, although this is debated within Portugal, they basically say they have an, an, an Atlantic vocation. So one of those vocations is NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But they also play on, and I don't mean this cynically, uh, because they wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't a certain resonance among the population. They also play on the South Atlantic vocation which is to say those countries where Portugal colonized, where they still speak Portuguese, which is to say Brazil, Angola, and Mozambique. Guinea-Bissau is not very important. It's too poor. Uh, and they, they work on that uh, in order to put themselves forward as an intermediary with certainly the Portuguese-speaking African country. So geopolitically and strategically and economically, the Portuguese are very, of all classes, are aware of their history. You know, they kind of look at a map and they can identify where they've been and where they still are and where they'd like to go back in, you know, in cultural and economic terms. So a lot of the people that I've come to know in Lisbon over the years have been people from the former Portuguese colonies. And it, it's a very interesting, different experience, I think, to walk around Lisbon. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget stumbling upon one of these, what they call in, in Portugal, it's that, you know, the age of discovery. And uh, we <laughs> came up, came across one at something, you know, the monument to the discoveries, and this, you know, just big soaring kind of monumental piece of architecture that's intended to commemorate Portugal's seafaring history. And I was with a bunch of Brazilians at the time. And one of them sort of looked at the statue Riley and, and then said, what is it exactly they think they discovered? And I'll sort of never forget being in the presence, right, of somebody who had grown up in one of these former colonies and trying to regard this kind of national mythology. So, so certainly for me as an outsider, I think I've always had, it's, it's all, I've always been very aware of that, of contradiction. I, I experienced the contradiction of it at the same time as I experienced the kind of the mythos. Um, my sense in, in Lisbon and the Portuguese national conversation is that it's as unreconciled as it is in, in most other places. Yes, the opulence of Lisbon is no accident. It was the seat of a sprawling global empire that spanned South America, Africa and Asia. It was a primary beneficiary of the wealth produced by Portugal's colonies. Money went into, into grand public spaces, Baroque palaces, monuments to the age of discoveries that Casey mentioned. But dig a little deeper and you'll find the darkness that funded this imperial capital. 
they tend to forget from the 15th century until the 19th century when the, the transatlantic trade was started by Portuguese. Naki Gaglo is a Togo-born Lisbon resident who hosts a Lisbon walking tour that reveals the city's African heritage. It's called African Lisbon Tours. I tried to take some tours in the city as a guest, and then uh, I realised that in all the tours I took, there were no mention of the slave trade. And the colonial history also is not really mentioned, but things that are glorified are the Portuguese kings, queens, explorators, and so... I just thought like, yeah, okay, if I can, through my research, if I can create a city tour, that would be good. I can share my knowledge. I can share my experience with everyone who also is open to the debate. The history of, of Portugal and Africa is even way back before the 15th century. That, that, that's the beginning of the exploration. You know, Portugal has been for centuries or so occupied by Moors. And more people are, are black from the north of Africa. So uh, the recent history will be the one of the slave trade, starting from the 15th century, where we're going to see much more black people be kidnapped from the African continent and brought to, to Portugal. So that will be the time when there will be more and more black people coming to Portugal, I mean, like, proud to Portugal. So uh, we can talk about, like, Praça do Comercio, for example, well, that was a port. That was the disembarkation ports of the enslaved. So knowing that from the 15th century, 16th century, there were ships mooring on the port of Lisbon, close to uh, Praça do Comercio, and imagining enslaved taken out from the ships and sent to uh, the house of the enslaved is something powerful. Today we, we usually go to that place, to that square, and meet people or making party, having some demonstrations. But at the same moment, it represents a lot for the diaspora in, in Portugal, right? So it's like the first entry. This is the entrance of enslaved in Portugal for the first time. So they were, they were arriving to a new destination, and this new destination was that square, Praça do Comercio. So... It's heavy. It's significant for the for the African diaspora. At the same time, we have a lot, lot, a lot of spots in the city where those black people lived back in the days when they died, when some people have been dumped. So yeah, we have every site, every site I cover and I don't cover have new, have different stories to be to be told. People tend to forget it a lot. And I would say, he, especially here in Portugal, it's like um, trying to be silenced, yeah, to silence this slave trade power and just focus on the most recent one, that is the colonial time, because people are still alive, people who experience this colonial time still alive. So it's not easy to, to just try to wipe out this part of the history. But we can all uh, hide it, and a lot of people will address this part of the history like something that was good where Portuguese was depicted as the best colonizer. So I'm just like trying to cover all this because it's a long period and that still exists today. It's not finished yet. You see the the policy, you see uh, the economy, you see the composer of the Portuguese population today 
So it's all about this history from uh, from way back. When we talk about the recentness of Portugal's colonial history, it pays to remember that the country was one of the last to begin decolonisation. But when it began in 1974, it came abruptly, ending centuries of rule in about a year. Of course, this came after more than a decade of armed resistance against Portuguese rule in Africa, and in Lisbon, Decolonisation transformed the city, with more than half a million white settlers from Portugal's former overseas territories descending on the city. This cohort are known as the Retornados. And this is the ABC National Radio Network. You're listening to AM, and it's just after eight minutes past eight. Australia has yet to respond to an appeal by the Portuguese military government to allow in as migrants refugees from its troubled colonies of Timor and now Angola. And as Des Power reports from Lisbon this morning, that the answer is eagerly awaited by thousands of refugees from Portugal's African colonies. I met Jose de Jesus Chirillo wearing his only possessions. His home in Angola was bombed by the NPLA one of the rival groups fighting there. His car was set on fire, so he fled across the border into South Africa with his wife, leaving behind his mother and three sisters. That was two months ago. He's not heard anything about them since. He now lives in a hostel in Lisbon. I was born in Mozambique. It was a Portuguese colony, that, and that's why I'm Portuguese, because when uh, we had the, well, the independence happened, we had to choose either to be Portuguese or obviously uh, Mozambican nationality. Carla Alamao is co-founder of Saudade, a bakery specialising in Portuguese tarts, or pastiche de nata, based in Adelaide. As you'll hear, she is no stranger to the Luciferne world. I was 10 at the time and uh, obviously my family chose the Portuguese uh, citizenship and we moved to South Africa basically running away a bit from, from uh, at the time, the, a bit of um, unrest and problems that were happening in, in Mozambique. But when the, the apartheid issues started to happen, my father was a bit afraid of history repeating itself. So that's why he, he basically sent us to Portugal and Brazil. So I went to Brazil with my grandmother and my uncle and auntie and uh, stayed there for a couple of years and then moved back to, to Portugal. When, because in the meantime, you moved to South Africa, from South Africa to Portugal to get properly established and then bring his kids back home. My, my first memories of Lisbon and Portugal that I can actually remember, it's basically when I moved from, from Brazil to Portugal and I was probably in my around 14, 15 years old. So I discovered the, the traditional pastries, um, the, the, in, in particular the, the, the cassatar, the pastel de nata. You'll find a Portuguese cassatar in every single bakery that you go, basically. We have, it's part of our daily routine. Uh, it's the typical um, uh, breakfast, as you can, it's like a little uh, roll, or they call it carcassa, or a, a little pound of light, which is like a bread milk or a croissant, because we also have a lot of French influence, with a ham and cheese or both or whatever, and then a freshly squeezed orange juice. Um, they called it the um, 
galão ou meia de leite, which is our basically latte or, or, or flat white, and then top with a with a cassa tarte. And that's a very typical breakfast, and you can have it in any bakery, any little restaurant uh, that offers breakfast. And you can also have it during the day, like mid-morning, you go out and have a little espresso with a, with a tart. You can have it after lunch, after your meal, and have a little cassa tart with an espresso, or even mid-afternoon. So the most traditional way to have it is with um, with an espresso. That's that's the typical way to have the the, the cassa tart. not hard to feel the weight of history pressing upon Lisbon's brightly coloured walls. A short walk around the city's centre will pass by the institutions that once had a stranglehold on Portuguese life. The old monasteries, palaces, cathedrals and civic offices, like the old Ministry of Colonies, now part of the Museum of Lisbon. And while you could read Lisbon as a site of faded grandeur, of of the bygone sitting on the edge of Europe, you can also see it as a place given a new lease of life. Why? Well, the empire has spoken back. My name's Courtney Clark. I go under the name Cece Disco. I'm a DJ originally from Cobram, aka Yorta Yorta Country. And I moved to Lisbon about three years ago. So something to note about Lisbon as being like one of the brighter European cities is the diverse culture and just the different groups that are here. So we've got the Brazilians, obviously, and Brazilian food is huge here. Brazilian music is absolutely off tap here. And you can find Brazilians everywhere. They will be in every shop. They will be working in cafes. They'll be, they're just everywhere. And you can only tell the difference. Well, I've only been able to tell the differences through how they say good morning. And then I'm like, oh, you're Brazilian. But you can just find Brazilians everywhere. And their influence here is, yeah, second to none. Also the Cape Verdeans. The Cape Verdeans, I've met so many here and just learnt so much about a place that I didn't know much about at all. And there's so much fantastic music that comes from there and that's been really, really great. But then I have like started to listen to a lot of these songs and they're really, really sad. They're not things I would necessarily play on the radio because there's a lot of history in all these songs and I'm not part of that history so I'm not sure if I could play it, but they're beautiful and the musicianship on some of these songs is incredible and the food. So the food is a huge thing. It's also quite spread out though, because most of the Cape Verdeans live in a certain area or certain sections of the city. So we've only got a couple of restaurants where I live, but you can see their their presence everywhere in music, kasumba. Kasumba is what they love. They love a bit of kasumba. And then you've got everyone from Mozambique as well. And then you've just got, I mean, there's so many different sections here and and diverse groups here. So it sort of makes, it makes a city come alive, especially when everyone's dancing. You can see the difference with everyone and just how everyone comes together when it comes to music as well, which is my favorite thing when I go to a festival here or a club or, you know, just seeing all the different groups come together. So 
So I've actually lived in so many places in Lisbon and that was because I was stuck in Airbnbs for about three years. I didn't have a visa. I was an illegal immigrant here for a little bit um, because of the pandemic and I couldn't get a lease. So I've only just settled in now and got a house in yeah, July, which was yeah, three years of touring and living in Airbnbs. So I finally found something and I found something incredible. In terms of like comparing it to Melbourne, I actually live in maybe Turak or something, which I mean, it's quite funny because sometimes people open up their garages and there's like four cars in there and I'm like this bogan from Australia on the same street. But I just came across this really nice house and it was a bargain. So I just was like, I'm going to rent this one. Um, I have this beautiful street that I live on. In fact, it's got a French bakery on the corner. It's got two little grocers there. And it's also got this amazing fountain statue thing that's just like it's the size of an Olympic pool. And then I can just walk down to the river within five minutes. I'm on the water and the whole suburb is just, it's really beautiful. There's a lot of Portuguese in this suburb and a lot of older Portuguese who have seen everything from the dictatorship to, you know, 90s techno. I mean, they would have seen everything. So there was one woman, Donna Marie, and she would walk past me every single day and she would ignore me and I'd say hello every single day, really politely in Portuguese and she'd just look at me and kind of huff sometimes. Sometimes I'd see her at 10 in the morning getting a beer at the supermarket and I was just thinking, what a legend. I'd say hello to her she'd just be like, Ugh. And I got the impression that she was just not into expats. And then one day... I think it was four months in I decided I just she's very short she's okay she literally came up to my hips and she was also 90 I think 92 or something she came up to my hips and she was walking towards me and I just sort of stood in front of her and I was like asked her again I was like good morning how are you how have you been and she just looked at me and she's like good thank you and then she just walked past me and I was like oh my god she said hello what's happening the next day I see her, she's like, oh, how are you? Do you want to come in one day? And I was like, what? And then I saw her again. And this was just just before I left to go back to Australia. And she came up and she was like, happy Christmas. So nice to see you. Do you want to come and have a drink with me one day? And she starts hugging me. And everyone in this cafe is like, what the hell? She doesn't talk to anyone. We've been trying to talk to her for years. If you're an expat, she won't talk to you. And she's doing, starts doing the can-can in front of us and she's like, happy Christmas in Portuguese. And we were just like, I was just like, what is going on? So one more time and then she gave me a big hug and then I left for Australia and then she died about two weeks later though. But I've made all these little friends in like these older Portuguese friends and it's kind of pushed me to learn Portuguese more because they're just so warm once you get to know them. And I think they have so many stories. There's a guy across the road who I've become friends with, Antonio, who can't come down the stairs. He, I think he's got some problems with his legs and he can't see properly. So he just, he sits outside of his window for eight to 10 hours a day. So sometimes I talk to him, I try and have a conversation with him in Portuguese. We just sort of look at each other and give up most of the time, but there's a lot of smiling and waving. I didn't speak a word of Portuguese when I came here, but I've been trying a lot and I've been learning a lot just through my friends um, and basically the shopkeepers. 
So most people who I buy stuff off in the little mini marts, they don't speak any English. So I have to practice with them and I cannot speak English with quite a few people. And I decided that it was quite rude just to like come here and not speak Portuguese as well. So I really tried to kind of get a grasp of the language because I think just to get kind of more insight into a country, you have to kind of speak a little bit. And it's really hard, the language, I'm not going to lie. And my accent with like an Australian Bogan accent is like some people just look at me and like, what are you saying? Are you trying to say this? And I was like, yes. And like your accent is so weird. So, yeah, I've just really given it a crack. It's not very good, my Portuguese, but yeah, you've got to try. You've been listening to Lost and Found, this time in Lisbon. You heard from Casey Walker, Naki Gaglo, Carla Alameo, and Cece Disco. If you want another journey to a Portuguese-speaking destination, listen to our episode on Brasilia. Uh, there for you on the ABC Listen app. Producers, Alan Whedon and Lisa DeVissi, technical production by Brendan O'Neill. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.